I'd, I'd like to read these words from the 125th Psalm. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, that the righteous may not put forth their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Our Father, we are so grateful that you surround your people as the mountains surround Jerusalem. We're so thankful, Lord, that righteousness uh, will prevail in the ultimate end because God will prevail. We know that the kingdom of God will one day be all-encompassing in terms of what you have chosen to, uh, to bring, those you have chosen to bring into your kingdom. And Father, I just pray that you will give to us hope, you'll give to us peace, you'll help us to move forward in your strength as we uh, study this uh, tragic event in the life of David. I pray that we will learn the truths that will help us to be people of compassion, to be people who realize that it's all by the grace of God that any of us can stand in your presence one day. And Father, I pray that in turn we will be loving uh, proclaimers of the Word of God uh, who will shine forth the glory and, and the grace of God into the lives of those around us. Father, I, I thank you for each one here and pray your special blessing and ask that you will teach us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. If you will turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We spent last Sunday and part of the Sunday before looking at the first five verses. I'd like to read those again and then move right on into the next section so that we can see the continuity here, because it, of course, is all one story, one account, one event. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not uh, go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, 
And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his own bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. This um, passage of Scripture, the whole 11th chapter of the uh, book of 2 Samuel, is one of the most tragic passages in um, all of Scripture. What we find, we, we, we read, of course, and studied the first five verses, and, and we saw uh, how this probably happened, and, and the role that David played, and the role that Bathsheba played, and, and the guilt, of course, that rested really upon both of them. But what we find here, though, is the focus is upon David, not upon Bathsheba. The focus is upon David, not because Bathsheba is irrelevant, not because women were not important or are not important, but because David is the man who stood before God as king over the land and priest over his people. And therefore, he was the, the man God held responsible. David was not prepared to confess his sin. This becomes quite obvious, does it not? Uh, he is not willing to face the possible public humiliation that would come out of this if this were to become news. In those days, obviously, there was no National Enquirer or, or Star or any of those other kind of magazines which, uh, which tell things that may not even have happened as if they were true. But what he has decided to do is to try to pull himself out of the miry clay by his own strength. He is going to do a cover-up. Now, he didn't have Richard Nixon around to look to and say, well, it's probably not going to work. Maybe Nixon took a page from his book. I don't know. If he did, he should have known it wasn't going to work out. The only way that David could think to protect Bathsheba here, for example, from being accused as an adulteress and himself from being accused as the perpetrator of the adultery was for him to get Uriah into bed with his wife. A fast-developing pregnancy uh, would be easier to explain than adultery. In his futile effort, and this whole thing that David does is totally futile because he's striving against God. This, this effort to cover up his sin without confessing it uh, is going to come back in and, of course, bite him big time, as, as we know. And so what David does in this attempted cover-up is send a message over to Joab. Send me Uriah. David has already hatched his plan, obviously. And under the pretext of a desire to understand the battlefield situation, David debriefed Uriah, to use you know, our modern terminology, debriefed. Acting said after, of course, Uriah, I mean, of course, he didn't really care. I mean, David did care about the battlefield, but he, things were going pretty well over there because the Ammonites had been defeated and they're all bottled up in their city of, of Ra. But he had to go through the form of, of this whole thing. And so uh, he's satisfied, uh, you, you brought me a good message, thank you for the information. And then very casually urges Uriah to go home and relax for a couple of days. You've worked hard, you've been at the battle, you've come and you give me this information, I give you a couple of days leave. Go home and I'll spend some time with your wife. Please spend some time with your wife. Even if it had worked and Uriah had gone home and slept with his wife, there is still rather great doubt that all of the question would have been removed. 
Most likely, by the time she discovered she was pregnant, she's probably put a month into this pregnancy. Uh, you know, I, I, it can't without, there were no pregnancies in those days. You, you just, you know, learn by the natural way. And, you know, probably looking at a month, maybe even a little bit longer, that she is convinced that she is pregnant and sends word to David. And then David says, you know, he, he goes, what am I going to do? And then he thinks and he thinks and he hatches up this plan and he sends a message over to Joah, send me Uriah, and Uriah has to come back, accustomed to today. Very few people in the land we're talking about rode animals. It's not like they jumped on their horse and rode off like uh, Roy Rogers and, and Tom Mix, you know, showing my age, aren't I? <laughs> Who should I use here? <laughs> yeah. They walked almost everywhere. Yeah, there were donkeys, and occasionally they rode donkeys, but donkeys were mostly beasts of burden. They walked almost everywhere. So everything was done by foot, virtually everything. I mean, they didn't have herds of horses. Solomon, one of the things he will do is buy horses out of Egypt, which God said he wouldn't do, and create herds of horses for the use of chariots. I mean, horse is not a common thing that these people owned uh, in this part of the world. And so Uriah's going to have to walk the 50 miles across the plateau, down into the pregnancies are of different lengths of time, and, but probably nobody else would have taken particularly serious notice. Much to David's dismay, however, Uriah would have none of it. He was not going to go home. Instead, he slept in the servants' quarters. This casual attempt by David to cover up his sin was frustrated. Who is the frustrator here? <laughs> I think we all know God is behind it. We all know the warning that uh, Israel was given by Moses that's recorded for us in Numbers 32. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's a law. I mean, it, it, it may have been word given by Moses long ago, but that's a law. The more you study scripture, the more you become familiar with who God is and how he operates in the universe through the, through the word of God the more we begin to realize that certain principles are, you know, just are characteristic of all time in, in the human race. And this is one of them. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now, did the Holy Spirit bring that to David's mind? David was familiar with the writings of Moses. If the Holy Spirit did, which I, I think he would have endeavored to do, David had to reject it. David had to crush it, to, to put it out of his mind because he was not going to go the route of confession. Instead, he recalls Uriah back to him and reasons with him. You've had a hard journey, Uriah. You're tired. You're grimy. Go home. Get cleaned up and rested. Spend some time with your wife. After all, she hasn't seen you for many weeks. Without trying to be too anxious and too obvious here, David was trying to reason with Uriah and, and convince him that this was okay, Uriah. It's okay to do this, Uriah. Go and, and do it. But this put Uriah in a difficult position. His king was urging him to do what his flesh was wanting to do. In his flesh, he wanted to do this. And, and his king now, which is really his ultimate commander, you could say, commander-in-chief, is telling him to, to do this. But his sense of honor and duty prevails over all. His sense of honor as, as one of David's 30 mighty men, I, I suppose you would put him in the, you know, if Joab is the general of the army, 
Uh, Uriah is one of the colonels in the army, so he's a high-ranking officer. He's got a sense of duty to Joab as commander. He's got a sense of duty to the men that are under him. They're over there facing battle. They're in the trenches, as it were. They're, they're not enjoying their families and their wives and the comforts at home. So how could he do that? Just because he was to be the messenger to report on the uh, affairs of war, why, why should he take advantage of the fact that he's home and uh, be lying in a comfortable place in bed with his wife while his men are over there facing the hardships? of battle. Uriah's integrity and his dedication to duty stood in sharp contrast to David's sad state. In verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark, the ark was still not in a temple, and Israel and Judah, meaning of course the men who are over fighting, are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, the army are camping in the open field. Shall I then go into my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life, he's talking to the king now, by your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this. I mean, he's, re he's rejecting a direct suggestion. The king didn't order him because that would <laughs> put David in a, in a place where the, Uriah would think, why are you doing this? You who have led us in battle year after year after year, you who have understood the hardship of battle, you who have been dedicated to, to this kind of story, why would you order me to do this? That would put some suspicion in Uriah's mind. So David could only suggest, and as a result, Uriah had the right to reject the suggestion. As such, Uriah is a powerful example to us as to what we should be in the Lord's work. When I was thinking about this and, and uh, studying over this, I was reminded of the words written by Englishman Isaac Watts in the 18th century, a famous hymn writer, who wrote the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? He wrote, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Life in America can be very easy. Uh, we can live in great ease here. Uh, probably more than most people in the rest of the world, uh, we can live in ease. And so it's really easy for us to be tempted to forget the battle, to forget the fight, to forget those who are on the front lines, and, and to take our ease because we deserve it. You know, we've worked hard, we've built this house, and we've got all this stuff, and so, you know, it's... We, we can easily be tempted to do that. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Take your ease. Don't be concerned. God will take care of those problems over there. It's not for you to worry about. But I think we need to combat that temptation. Firstly, we need to keep ourselves aware of the great battle that is raging worldwide for the souls of men and women. That's one of the reasons we have this, this focus on these who have been a part of our class uh, at one time or another. Uh, and as they're going out to these battlefronts, really that's what they are. They're every bit as much a battlefront as the army of Israel standing in front of Rabbah. Because that was a physical battle that had spiritual ramifications, but all over the world the spiritual battle is raging and that's the great battle. Because that's the ultimate battle. That's the b uh, battle which determines the fate of human souls forever. 
Secondly, we need to keep ourselves prepared for the battle. And that's where Ephesians 6 comes in so well, putting on the armor of God. These are things we need to consciously be doing so that we can stand in the battle that may rage immediately around us. And it is. It is. I think we're all aware of that because we have loved ones, we have friends, we have uh, acquaintances who are going through terrible struggles. Thirdly, I think we need to keep our focus on the greatest weapon that we have in the arsenal, and that is personal and corporate prayer. It's the greatest weapon. That's one of the reasons that I feel it's important for us as a class to, to stand in prayer at, for these and, and for the needs, uh, our own needs and the needs of those around us here. Fourthly, uh, by keeping our focus on giving our resources to this battle, supporting the work of God, the advancement of the kingdom. And then fifthly, keeping our focus on placing ourselves physically on the battlefield in service of the kingdom, whatever that may be. That, that may be, uh, you know, going and ministering at the rescue mission. That may be teaching a Sunday school class. That may be attending prayer meeting. It comes in many forms. We all know what, what God has called us to do. We all have a place. Erwin Lutzer was this morning talking about uh, Paul's writings about the body being made up of many parts and, and how the parts all must function together. And uh, if there's a, uh, a maverick cell, it becomes like a cancerous cell and, and is hindering the, the, the body rather than working with the body. We, we all have a place in the body in which to work. And so Uriah becomes an example to us of what it is to, to commit ourselves in integrity to staying with the work, staying with the battle, staying with the stuff, whatever our position might be. And David is, in effect, the voice of the enemy. The enemy is speaking through David. Oh, Uriah, go home and take your ease. I think the closer we endeavor to walk with our Lord, the greater is the intensity of the spiritual warfare. You've probably noticed this. But the sweeter is the victory as well. In, in thinking about this, this passage came to mind in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, in uh, verse 10, John, through inspiration of the Spirit, of course, is speaking to the uh, church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Now, we might say, I don't want to be a stone pillar with names written on me. <laughs> Obviously, you know, that's figurative speech. It's just talking about the great reward that comes to those who have persevered, who have stood in there, like Uriah was endeavoring to do here uh, in, in terms of being a good soldier. And so it is for us as we strive to serve the Lord with integrity.
God is using Uriah to try to prick David's conscience, but David is having none of it. David is hardening his heart. And so when David pressed Uriah to take a few days leave, Uriah responded, I have a duty to perform for my God and for my kingdom. And this is no time for rest and pleasure. Unfortunately, David was so intent on covering up his sin, he does not hear the message God is saying through Uriah. I mean, if David could just hear what God is saying. I must be loyal to my men. I must stand by the stuff. I must do my duty. Well, David, his scheming became so desperate that he decided, if I get the guy drunk, then he'll do it simply because he won't know what he's doing. And so he attempts to do this. He brings him, winds him, and dines him, and winds him, and winds him, and winds him, until Uriah is intoxicated. He wanted him to do what he would not do when he was sober. Because when one is drunk, one doesn't know what one's doing, or as the inhibitions go away. This is one of the major reasons why we have the admonition in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. If we become intoxicated with alcohol, our defenses are dropped, and we become tools of the enemy. We hear about it all the time. But if we're filled with the Spirit, then we are instruments in the hands of God to bring victory. Well, God certainly hardened Uriah's resolve. Even though Uriah was drunk, he would not go home. He simply would not go home. His resolve was great enough, with God's help, of course, to hold him fast in spite of what David had done to him. God knew the price that Uriah was about to pay, and yet God used Uriah because God was not going to allow David to cover up his sin. It was going to cost Uriah dearly, but God used him to accomplish his purpose. Let's read on in verse 14. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so, from, from him, <clears throat> so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among it, David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war, and he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot down from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jer uh, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw a, an upper millstone on him from the wall so that they died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field. But we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, 
so that the king's, some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the, said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. David has seen every effort so far foiled. In his attempt to cover up his sin, to make it as if it didn't happen so that nobody would know, everything was foiled. And so David hatches up a more diabolical plot than ever before. Just as one lie leads to more and greater lies, so David's adultery, an attempt to cover up his adultery, leads to the even more heinous sin of murder. So what does this tell us? It tells us that to refuse to confess and repent of our sin leads to heaping sin upon sin until we're stuck in a vast spiritual morass. The only way out of this vile entanglement, the only way out of this, this swamp of sin is to avail ourselves of the truth that is made so clear to us in 1 John 1, 9 that we all have certainly memorized that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a swamp, but you know, I, I've been in swampy areas, but I've never been in like the heart of darkest Africa in a swamp. Larry and Ed were just in Africa, but were you in a swamp? Might have felt like it at times, probably. <laughs> um, but you can imagine how yucky and mucky and everything else it would be and how good it would feel to get a shower and get clean. And that's what 1 John 1, 9 does for us spiritually. It cleanses us. as God cleanses us, of course, as we walk, as we react in obedience to his proclamation there. There's a proverb that really speaks directly to this. Proverbs 28, uh, verse 13. Proverbs 28, 13 he says, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Compassion from whom? Well, primarily, of course, from God. And that's the most important source of compassion. Sometimes we don't receive that much compassion from other people. Some people might say, you did that? You know, as if they were angels who'd never committed a sin. We don't know when David wrote the, uh, the 19th Psalm, Psalm that's uh, pretty familiar to, I think, most of us. But whenever he wrote it, whether he wrote it before this time or he wrote it after this time, obviously if he wrote it after this time, then he couldn't have remembered it. <laughs> but if he wrote it before uh, this particular time, you know, God could easily have spoken and probably would have spoken to him these words that come at the end of the 19th Psalm at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let, not, let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I have a feeling David probably wrote this later in life, but nevertheless, 
the truth is, is very powerful here as, you, as we think about it. Uh, he says, let sin not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and acquitted of great transgression. There's a tendency, primarily because certain large churches, I don't mean individual churches, but denominations, have tended to put sins in order of gravity. You know, cardinal sins and mortal sins and menial sins and trivial sins. And, and there are even Protestant denominations which do this and say, well, that's a big sin, but this is just a little error, a little mistake, you know. But as you study through Scripture, sin is sin. Any, any time in which we disobey the Spirit of God, the Word of God, we quench the Spirit of God, we've broken our fellowship, whether it be what we would call a small sin or a great sin. Obviously, the sin of adultery which leads to murder is a heinous sin. But Jesus would go on to say that even he who thinks uh, towards a woman in such a way that he commits adultery, whether in his mind, that that breaks the fellowship with God as if, you know, almost as if he had done it in, in the flesh. We talked about that a little bit last time. And, and so it's really important that we realize that we live by the grace of God. By the grace of God. That's the capital G word, you know, grace. We all live by grace, and we're all here by grace. And none of us is more worthy of the kingdom of God than any other person who has been saved by grace. And that's what I find so tragic in, in some of the uh, more liturgical religions that you can actually earn your way to heaven. You, you can do things that make God look down on you and have to get, you know, love you because you're such a good guy or a good gal, which is a bunch of hokum. None of us is good, the scripture says. It doesn't say none is good except for, you know, saint this and saint that and saint somebody else. We all are in desperate need of, of the grace of God, and that's what's so glorious about the truth of Scripture and about this story. Because God's grace will be poured out upon David and upon Bathsheba. Rather, however, than confessing his sin and dealing with the consequences at this moment, David chose to draw yet another person into the web. He's going to tell Joab, not what happened, of course, but he's going to draw Joab into his cover-up. Job was a man who greatly needed God in his life. Job was out on the fringe all the time. You know, Joab was one of those kind of guys who's, who's a, you know, macho guy who's a warrior and everything and who gives God lip service when it seems necessary, but other than that, he lives a pretty rough life. And who could have been a greater witness to Joab than David? Who could Joab more respect than David? David was a mighty warrior, a greater warrior than Joab himself. And yet, rather than influencing Joab towards God, David here makes him an unwitting accomplice in his own personal rebellion against God. This is why Nathan the prophet will jam his finger right into David's chest and say, you have caused people to blaspheme the name of God. The harboring of sin destroys our witness, and it confirms in the minds of the non-believer that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, which many have said, as an excuse for their own hypocrisy, of course, because every human being is a hypocrite. 
But for Christians, it becomes a lot more obvious because we're out there telling other people that they ought to be like we are. And then we turn around and do some horrible thing like David has done here. And you know, that really helps the kingdom of God. Yeah, right. Just how vile a man of God can become when he rebels against God is illustrated by the fact that David now signs Uriah's death warrant. David, think about it. You're trying to cover adultery with murder. And he sends the death warrant to Joab by Uriah's own hand. Uriah goes back carrying his own death warrant in his little pouch unbeknownst to him. Being a good soldier, he doesn't read the message from the commander-in-chief to the commander on the battlefield. Now, at that moment, he probably should have read it. He'd have become an Ammonite. No, no, he wouldn't have. <laughs> but think about that. You know, it's, to me, it's like in World War II when uh, the Nazis had the Jews dig their own graves and then shot them into it. I mean, it's, it's horrifying. Loyal to David to the very end, Uriah unwittingly participates in his own destruction. Even though David doesn't tell Joab why he wants him dead. Joab's no dummy. As soon as Uriah's dead and the, day, and the morning is over, David instantly marries Bathsheba. You know, Joab, pretty bright guy, you know. He could probably figure it out. And quickly when it's discovered, of course, that Bathsheba's pregnant. Now, did others put two and two together? Well, how many do you suppose put two and two together? I think quite a few. Other men there on the battlefield are going to think, Joab, why did you do this? Now, why does Joab comply with David's order? Now, yes, it's the king and David's, but, but to intentionally kill one of your own military commanders who's been loyal to you all these years? But there's no record here that Joab questioned David or sent a messenger back. David, did I get this right? You're, you're saying to me, you want Uriah dead? There's no record of that at all. Why does Joab comply? I think what we discover as we look through the course of the life of Joab, that Joab is a man who takes what he can get when he can get it. And I think he actually feared Uriah. I think he thought of Uriah as a challenger to his own position as commander of the army. He knew that David had some uh, question about him because Joab hadn't always obeyed David before. And so he might have feared that Uriah would be somebody who could replace him as commander. And so maybe out of jealousy, he was willing to comply. It seems that whenever it's to Joab's advantage, he complies. When it's not to his advantage, he challenges David. Remember when he murdered Abner, Saul's commander, and David was furious at him? And later on, he's going to murder Absalom, David's son, when David says specifically, if you find him, don't hurt him? And yet Joab, you know, does him in, knowing that David's going to be hurt by this. But Joab does what Joab does for his own advantage. Well, Joab has to do something very foolish here. And uh, I want to say a little bit about how the, what happened here and why it was, it, it was such a foolish thing and why Joab could have been kicked right out of the military. Uh, what's the word I want to... Uh, Court-martialed, yes. Joab could have been court-martialed for, for stupidity here because he did something that you just don't do when you're besieging a city. 
I mean, anybody with half a brain doesn't do this. And so obviously, uh, Joab seems culpable here and, and subject to possible court-martial. And so we need to see what happened and, and uh, of course, we've read why, how he got away with it. So we'll do that uh, next week.